Jackson the Cat. Episode 4, Robinson, Part 1. Section the First I'm a stranger to this country. I lived on the outskirts of the Bog Barrens for many a year. That's where I, Carter Blanche, endured my not earliest youth, from about the ages of fourteen to twenty, a besotted, miserable, heartsick affair, and anything before that is shrouded in mist. It was only yesterday that I came to Tupenia after tarrying for weeks at a bizarre, fatiguing town overpopulated with youth. I have had many an hour now to consider where it may be that Providence should bring me, but I am affrighted and tired, and of course do wonder at the reality of what I have seen. I find myself considering now if the Almighty took it in his interest to pass me through thonic fires beneath, and I rest at this inn, looking at my life stretch as in my mind's eye like one sable and rotting log, felled, hollow through the middle, where one might hardly see light at the end. It is now the third day, and I am precipitously low on funds. However, the innkeeper at this place, a good and honest one by the name of Liza, is stretching the point. There are very few people here, only a post office and a few houses and one reading room beside a parish, and, of course, the inn. And something that is not a voice I can describe tells me this is not what I have come for. As I fill the days gazing and attempting, with ink quill and sextants and rods, to survey the size and angle of the vast precipice on which Tupenia sits, I reach the end of my week. I've endeavored to fill without cease my journal of scientific observations. Today, I decided to make a trip to the reading room by way of the post office, to see what I might learn of the country which lies to the south of here. When you enter, there is a back door in the mailing room where all are welcome, though few visit from what I've seen. And through this back door is the reading quarters, kept by a man named Innes. He is between the ages of fifty and sixty. I saw there are not over many of books in his care, but perhaps more than I would have expected. I told him I am looking for a book as like a map or history, in order to learn of what might be lying south. He informed me in turn there is in fact little to see. Off this I explained to him that I have had many harsh and sordid events befall me, and that I am only looking to explore what's generally untouched by man, as Providence has told me this shall guide me to my ordained path of life. It is at this time that a woman from the town ran in and told Innes his wife wished him to mail Ash to their son in Diamond. She left, and I explained again that I am sorely determined to venture where none have before, so that I may by this discover a certain secret and inexpressible purpose. The man looked at me for a time and appeared to soften, but said that there was little gained from striking south. No one who's done so has yet returned. The last who had departed, a man named Johansson, was broadly considered mad for doing it, and it was unclear to Innes why I myself should venture. Then, with hesitation, I explained my theorem of the line. I shall not delve into that here. When I explained I would go south no matter what, help or none, he looked at me and went back behind the counter where, from out of the bookcase, in volume on leeches and various types, he revealed an envelope from which he pinched off dark ash. He rubbed it over the mouth of my bag. In his family, 
Ash is given to those who wish to go beyond the limits of their own ability. I tried to hide my pain at this flagrant and rather brutal remark, but when he said, with slow speech and pulling a hat over his eyes, that his son should never have the ash for lack of need or interest, I said not one more word. That night, in the small desk at my apartments, a green sea of pine near at hand, I thought again of the line and how Johansson might have become, in my mind, as one who is flat in the way that those in Tupenia speak of him, as one mad, that is to say, gone from the world of rational beings. This flat Johansson was all that I had yet opportunity to encounter, and not the man. It came to me that in Johansson's attempt to convey what he wished to see by striking south, mad or not, he might have witnessed a false and flat dummy of one's own image, reflected in the eyes and mouths of those who had once been his townsmen in Tupenia. I was tired and spent from anxiety caused by thinking, and I blew my candle and changed into clothes for bed. Listening to the turning of the night wheel without, I was drawn to think on Johansson's new conception of his own soul as something flat, and, to put it simply, without depth. How this may lay cause for him to never venture out into the world, I can merely speculate. Of course, from this he may have been induced into his final flight from Tupenia. Once more I turned on my pillow, wishing, not praying, that if the Almighty failed me, the line could in place thrive. I inhaled. Section the Second I have now ventured off and have been in something of a fog, the air about me thick and clouded. Liza, the good woman who kept the inn, was kind enough before I left to offer me a pineapple, which is grown in Tupenia, and ask if in my travels I'm blessed enough to return. I assured I certainly would. She prayed me to bring her some dog's chew, as I think she might have called it, though the name I feel I'm not rightly transcribing. The ingredients for it were no longer at hand. I asked her why this was the case, and she said a village, which lately remained isolate, never engaged in small travel or trade outside of its realm, had nevertheless once provided provender and other goods in exchange for Tupenian ware, but that this village had vanished in the fog three years hence, along with the remainder of the South. I told Liza I'd see what I could do. The fog has now been all-encompassing and difficult to navigate from. I can only find pockets of light which in themselves reveal naught but mire below, all too familiar of home. The shapes and sometimes stunning blows of dun trees that reveal themselves to be in my path are startling. From this my nose became sorely bruised. The fog is natural and unremarked white in color, but acrid to taste with even hints of sugar, egg, brandy besides. I have become oft-tired. Section the Third Do forgive. I write in a state of shock whole through, and this is now some time after the incidents that I shall relay for the entire portion remaining of the narrative. It was on the eighth day that I was close to losing hope. I had no question it was nothing but my earlier years in the bog barrens that had given me the strength and reserve to toil as far as I had in the abyss. Nevertheless, despite an apparent training and familiarity with mud and fog, I was coming, I felt, to an end. The absence of God Almighty was here beyond question, 
and this place was for myself a void. The Lord didn't dwell. As for the last refuge, without question, the line. Where else but in a fog are shapes anything if not flat? For a moment I halted. I stood with my arms swinging at the sides. If one were to go beyond a home that had nothing but difficulty and primarily betrayed expectations for one, and to find the same mist and obscurity, but without even the virtuousness of the familiar, that is to say, what was old and not strange, what was, to put it in a word, our common misery, where is one's shape, then, in the world at all? I stood and smelled cream. And then, with eyes raised, I examined this thought on said virtues of familiarity, and with great movement, inward as it were, cast it out, thrust it away, to let me step full force into a world of total and annihilating blankness. If it must be, at least let it be blankness that isn't stale. And the color came. This began slow, and I believed it was a mere tint or shade of the natural fog I'd seen anot me days hence. Soon, though, I quickly divined that the least shade of charcoal or steel amongst the herd of white were not as they had been prior. They'd taken on a hue of most sickly green. The eyes adjusted, and, standing stupefied, my sight came up to me in a swift leap and saw the fog turning an unpleasant yellow. From this I stopped, unsure of how to move farther. I was in a word gripped with great fear. Could this be a hateful poison, vapor not meant to be breathed by man, entering lungs while I stood ready for death? But swiftly came the sounds of voices, men's voices. I knew not whether to be affrighted or glad, but quickly fear took the better portion of me, as the fog of a flavid cast was starting to take on strange shapes, while these voices prated, jabbered, not yet known to me to be vicious or wholesome. And honestly, if I were you, I would stand up and from a higher vantage point to actually test it properly. Said a voice formal and I thought precocious, to be compared to a child proving the answers she might have correct when quizzed by the tutor, but now full grown to maturity. I continued to hold my breath, afraid to move lest I might startle. Yes, said another. It would be so grand if we got to romantically gaze down on the dell, enlarged by alchemy. Or even better, gaze down on ourselves, swelling through the dip. This a voice full enthused and joyous, though there was a mere hint of the conspiratorial about it. I gave pause. Premising a conclusion that might eat its if as a mother of her brood. This was the voice which gave me terror and set mine heart against me. It was horrifying like to the yellow mist itself, appearing in truth to be a cold, wrecked speech that had been touched with smoke and grit for however many a day. I turned about myself, wishing for a demonstrable way free. Though, junk, one might grant you a skill with angles and incidents spawned from the years of crash testing, I must recall to all that we have selected an area low, up to the very outskirts of our village, so as to firstly keep the Chattisteth discreet due to its latent ill use of January, and second, to view how it make friend or foe with the enveloping fog. As for your talk, motley of the romance and the spectacle, per usual, I must remind you, our constant showman, of the agreement to a subtle test this morning. We are not wanting to put a Krugly in another impossible jam, or give the Hartley Letch a chance at recognizing. I did not like this voice at all. Yeah, 
the enthused one who I thought must be the speaker called Motley, muttered. I was unsure of what I ought to do. Finally, breath gave way, and I sucked in a massive mixed bank and coughed severely and practically lost sense as I doubled over. Sulfuric and thick was the mist in my throat. What the heck was that? cried the junk monstrous. At first, I thought that the tears swimming in my vision were causing odd movement of the yellow fog, but after I had blinked it away, still hacking, I saw an awful confluence that had been cohering in front of my eyes. The fog itself, I tell you, did speak. I screamed, unclear on the sin I had done to deserve a horror of such magnitude before me. Particles of gas were making bestial grimaces at my person whilst I stumbled, one tree to the next, plummeting like into madness, despair. What is this? I yelled, and quite lost hold of my faculties. Once I awoke, I was sprawled beneath a blue sky above me, and for a moment, forgetting where I had gone and what I was, I made the natural presumption that I'd awoken again in the Chamberlands, where I'd traveled west of the Bog Barrens six years ago. I thought myself on the grass-covered swale, sate, staring skyward. But quickly I came to my senses and could see I had not been in the Chamberlands for many a year, was traveling through unpleasant alleyways and fetid field for the sake of some incredibly foolish and bogus hope at redeeming, discovering the line when an awful, wrecked voice over me said, Yet another loon in the veil. Section the Fourth Well, he needs to have water. Trust me, I was doing this all the time when my poetry friend's throats got too dry from reciting one of my beautiful stanzas. Mott, Mott, what are you doing? I'm trying to get a look at this guy, and you're pouring water on his face. He has to be hydrated. Oh, great. Now that one bystander's run off and is going to tell everybody another newcomer's barged in. A splash of water plashed on my lips until fright sprang me to my feet. The vapors were no longer there, yet the voices still hovered. Hello! This was the enthused voice of a daemon, named Motley, it seemed, and I turned my head to find the source of the cry until a sharp wheeze came out of my throat at what my eyes beheld. A cat as large as a man, and even a bit wider thereabouts, stood grinning at me. He was predominant with patterns of black all round him, as one cat I had befriended through a neighbor years ago, but that house pet was not clothed like this one in regular dress. I clutched my satchel. Ah, said, stepping into view, a thin, equal-tall, sour, broad-hatted cat the color of overcast sky by first dusk. He is naturally insane. At this, I knew not what to do but break out into an immediate dash, fearing my quest for the line had all along been pure sin, as well as an unwise thing to seek out. My bag slammed on my ribs as mine head plunged into a black muddle of anger. But in an instant, a shrill whistle sounded in the left ear, causing a great ruckus to course through my head. An arm was grabbed most roughly with a firm twist behind my back. I was seized in an instant. Think it's time we had a breath of fresh air for a bit before we go off on another sprint? I turned and saw I was restrained by a third outsized house cat, fur the color of sand with two broad white stripes near the whiskers, not quite touching at a center beneath the mouth. I saw as from his vestments he was an enforcer of some kind, and his accent, like the frightening one with the wrecked voice, seemed positively foreign and strange, compared with the voices of the monsters Junk and Motley. The sudden touch of something familiar, comparatively, 
from those latter two gave me strange consolement. Whoa, 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 you don't need to twist his arm. Junk Cat ran up, clothed simply over somewhat curled black fur. He's just afraid. Loosen up. Right. Forgive a paranoid fool with a headache. The enforcer let loose of my arm, but kept a paw on my shoulder. I could feel from the way he'd grabbed hold of me that these beasts had a certain greater agility with their claws than any regular cat might, but the dexterity I'd soon find was not equal to my own ungifted human hands. Motley there kept me up all night with his talks of threnody and buffet envy. I'm not envious. Motley joined us, and I thought uncomfortably of how I was now surrounded on three sides. I was going to faint. I just thought, why not hire me as a host part-time, so I can get in good with the more fashionable echelons of Franzia's jet set, he cried. But of course, Jeffrey has his own plans, with only giving the highest-paying customers golden straws, even though I thought of that months ago, when we were watching part- Point being, I had to hear all that, along with lots of eau de vie, or whatever you please. Krugly's just too tame for the real fetting, Motley said addressing me with that touch of the conspiratorial I'd noticed earlier. I was going to attempt to say something when those worst tones of all sent a chill down my spine. This has, we know, happened previously. The cat, the color of lightning illumined smoke, walked over in his bright, broad-brimmed hat and high-collared, limestone-shaded overcoat. I think you must have come from this bedlam we all discuss. There was a slightly blooded bandage at the center of his nose. The conclusion is irrevocable that they feed you all something which makes you unwell, considering the commonality of these said delusions. So then, what might it be? We are all cats, is it? All four glanced at one another and broke out into, what I must be frank to tell you, was laughter. As I saw with eyes as sure as God had given me that the four man-sized cats laughed and spoke as men, I swallowed my fear and nodded. I didn't wish to cause more violence from the enforcer, Krugly. This shall help the pool, surely, if he remains coherent enough to answer any queries, said the ravaged voice. Obviously, thereafter, one's free to run off as others have, since none of you invaders have ever been able to show us a way out. In fact, they just disappear into the noisome mist. Ah, well. Silence. Motley, who I realized I was not overly indifferent toward, perhaps not even overly hostile toward, said, Do you remember exactly what was around you at this, well, asylum? What are you called? It was I who had made this speech, and they all blinked, evidently amazed. The question was pointed to the cat with gray fur and yellow eyes and tarnished manner. This one looked at me a moment and said, A civil servant. It is I who call myself Jackson, the potioneer, but the world and myself call me unpleasant. You? Carter Blanche, I said. No one in Tupenia had made inquiry of my name, and it was strange to hear myself speak it the first time in many a day. Blanche, Jackson said, like he were as with me experiencing a strangeness in hearing it. So, he said, after a time, Obvious you've retained a certain degree of cognizance, despite the illnesses that you've been asylumed of, as well as the disorienting toll of navigating the fogs. I didn't blink, then saw Motley cast a sympathetic gaze. I was astonished at the expressiveness of mortal feeling which the cat's eyes were capable of showing. Hey, said Motley, you okay? I noted that he carried a butterfly net. 
I was still deeply affrighted. I made as of someone forcing oneself to speak. I have no notion as to if I might return through the mists back to the north, and in doing so take things and, I hesitated, individuals back with me. But it isn't impossible. The motley one's eyes widened and two of the others stepped toward me, looking suddenly very excited, with the junk one saying, Wait, really? Krugly Cat saying, Now there's information I'd like to get hold of. Motley One saying, Well, no Franzian has ever tried to penetrate the mist. Three of them at once, asking excitedly what I knew and how it might be done, and if I was sane enough to draw a map or even a graph. These creatures were still far too strange for me to unwend from my stupor, despite the large, white-and-black-mottled Motley's deportment coming near close to a mimic of human sympathy and their obvious eagerness, I could not cut free from this feeling of being ill at ease. These were, after all, monsters. Suddenly I turned my head from them back toward the one called Jackson, who, under a broad-brimmed hat, was looking far off with some obvious shade of discomfiture. While the three beasts wagged tongues and animated their countenances, plashed with hunger at the information I had, which they evidently did not, it was amidst my rising fear that the sight of, to be frank, this one cat behind them, standing aside, apparently made evasive and uncertain, lost in his own brooding of dusk, lifelessness, all from a mention of the possibility of egress out of the cage, for it was that, I think, that caused him to take on this cloudier aspect. As I now realized, the village was trapped in mist, and in fact, the hamlet most likely mentioned to me by Liza. This particular mood and cast within Jackson's eyes, the fear, the self-imprisonment from others, and a fright from the threat that the possibility of escape may bring. Mysterious as that was, this caused me to snap, and in one instant see them as men. Not literally, but in my mind's eye, and trapped by some monstrous gauze or cloak of deformity, with some sort of power beyond science knowable. But men. I would like a meal, I said, though of a sudden, before anyone could heed my wishes, a shape came running through the grass and down the ridge. We turned and saw a fellow enforcer aiming toward Krugly. Bit of a situation, Krug, he said, and the bright eyes fixed on me. Chauncey was right. Another one. Hello there, Ross. No Chauncey'd be trouble when I saw him lingering near our whatever stiff thing of me, said Krugly. Suppose he's been in town for the previous sixty minutes telling anyone who will listen regarding the next mad stumbler who's come in off the fog. I had been unconscious for upwards of one hour? Yeah, more or less, Ross said. There was an energy and even obsequiousness in his manner. It was obvious he viewed Krugly the superior with keen admiration. But then, after that, something a little more important happened. Krug- Can't tell if he's mad like the others, said Junk. No offense, said Motley. Yeah, 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 no offense, said Junk. We've had a lot of strange circumstances over these last few years. Then he is some sort of a loon, said Krugly, pointing one paw at me and addressing Jackson. The potioneer, avoiding my gaze and standing profile, made a face. Yes. Okay, then, we'll feed him and all that. The senior enforcer clapped his paws and turned to the other one and said, So then, what have we here for a situation we're being dragged into this time? Robbery, said the green-eyed tabby, failing to keep his eyes off mine. It, the miniature museum, the one on Robinson. Ah, hell, Marion'll be ripped, and bid. Both them enjoyed the tiny little lampposts and mansard roofs and all that. How much of the inventory's been taken? 
No, none. Just, uh, cash. Well, uh, not cash, said Ross. Gold pieces. All right. Then Krugly frowned. Kinda had that much on them. They did, said Ross. And they're expecting us. Yeah, all right. We'll talk as we go. He turned. You all right coming along? I looked around me and with bodily motion consented. It was almost pleasant to imagine the humor of if I had said no and that I'd rather wander toward the mist to get lost again. Though still, I retained faith that if I came to that, I could find my way back. I was only going to tarry here for a limited time. Well, so you three can come along with us too, said Krugly. Oh, I'm definitely interested, Motley cried, gesturing with the butterfly net, even though I didn't get to seize any of my lepidoptera. Then, turning away from Krugly, he looked at me with a cheerful and yet I could espy careful glance. He said, Looking at miniatures are always a great way to do a test run at decorating your own apartment. To scale, said Jackson. Yes. We six journeyed as the enforcer, Ross, continued to give a report. Actually, they did have quite a few Franzens in the shop, but the thief didn't touch those. See, after smashing the shop window, he said, a noise multiple witnesses, by the way, claimed they heard loud and clear, the thief stole about a dozen gold pieces from a safe under the till. What? said Krugly. About four thousand. The senior stopped. All that stolen today? Ross nodded. Not anything they had in credit and notes at the Tingston, then. Ross made a movement of his shoulders. They do have an account at the Tingston, but I take it people who collect, display, and sell miniatures, as well as equipment for miniatures, are a little old-fashioned. People. Ech. Krugly seemed angry at the keepers of this museum. I knew not what they meant by miniatures or even a museum itself. And less angry at the thief who'd robbed them. That'll show the lot. The curators or the thieves? Me, Krugly said, and my hopes. Can I ask, what sort of miniatures does the museum have on display? This was junk, an inquiry to the enforcer, the gentle cat Ross. Anything like small soldiers for war games? Uh, this week's theme seemed to be sickness. It was not long before the conversation got rendered senseless about me. We'd arrived at the apparent nexus of town, and it was much that my effort required to not take leave of my reason right then. Oh, so do we all and everyone in front of you look like a cohort of felines? This was Motley. I used to have a grandma who thought she saw dirt on perfectly clean clothing, and that would lead to my most vicious beatings. He expressed this almost as pleasant remembrance. Of course, I wonder if some of these people like you who have those delusions are actually just seeing spirits or ghouls who manifest to try and tell you something. He winked. Come on, on we go, said Krugly. I steadied myself and attempted to be still. We walked. Can't blame the fools, I suppose, for not wanting credit with the Tingston. Owner's a bit of a fool, too, owner of the Tingston, that is. Who all of a sudden today, a Saturday, announces the bank's closed on any Saturday of the weekend. And no warning aforehand. He became sullen. Could be some things we want a little cash for. Not like I got a second account at the Doll Bank. But payday was yesterday, Ross said. What happened? Did you get robbed last night? Krugly became, I saw, withdrawn. No. Well, did you spend or lose money last evening, somehow? Krugly looked furtive at Motley, who was grinning with Jackson and Junk, Junk especially, who looked into the distance. Krugly said, nothing. We arrived, cats in human clothes still ambling around me to my increasing acceptance. I soon ascertained that a museum was a sort of reading room or library, although in this case only for that which is not written, but only shrunken models of other things, houses, way stations, and horse stables. The keeper of the museum came out of her office. 
She was a black cat with dark eyes, hair smooth and not curled like Junk's. Her dress was entirely plain. Her gaze greeted each one of us and, it seemed, each of us again before she spoke. I'm glad you came. She didn't sound particularly sure. Hello, ma'am, I'm Officer Krugly, you probably know me. She nodded. Krugly looked at the smashed window and said, Ross tells me gold coin valued at several thousand franzens has been stolen off you today. Yes. Silence. Inside the room upon the little models were ice packs and mercury sticks, as well as bandages and cups of vilest medicine, though no more than a dram. It began to seem strange we were even here, although I had double quantities of that feeling in a more general sense. Hattie, did the police get here? A tall, boisterous cat in buttoned corduroy emerged out the back room. Hey, John Lithbray, this is my sister, Hattie, he said. Sorry I didn't come out sooner. I was dealing with some crap with my entertainment company over a misbooking regarding our... You know, we have a lot of different names under our entertainment umbrella, and they get it wrong and ends up becoming a whole mess. So, you guys get the whole scoop from, uh... He looked wantonly from Hattie to Ross. His manner was on the whole cheerful. You know, about the... Yeah, Ross said. However, goes without saying that the more we know, the more we can aid, said Krugly. Got a table? I find a card game, like, uh, can't say. Perhaps, well, maybe a book-laying game? Could try? Relaxes people when they're coming down from the stress of a nick. Oh, well, I've never played, said Johnleth. Well, I'll just show the rules here, and- Suddenly it was evident Krugly could see Jackson meeting his eye, the latter gazing at him, disapproved and baffled. Krugly changed course. No, that's not good. Sorry. Had a rather lurid night at the theater lately. So, think you could describe for me exactly what, uh, you found, Braid? Or, uh, who was it happened in on the break-in? You or Hattie here? Also, I'm sorry, I have to ask. Motley, interrupting, gazed at a display called Tiny Poets that had a row of eight men and women, not cats, standing by lecterns. Each contained a small book opened at a series of stanzas in exquisitely rendered, delicate script. Every script distinctly different for each bard. This is so good, Motley said. The one for Longfellow has to be John Alden declaring his undying devotion, doesn't it? At the lectern labeled for Longfellow, this did not appear to be what Motley described. In that small book, the harsh, angry hand read, And thou too, whosoever thou art, that readest this brief psalm, as one by one thy hopes depart, be resolute and calm. Interrupted from reading the end of the sentence, not the only time that specific irritant should befall that day, I stumbled as Motley pushed and blocked the way, while Johnlith made answer. As to your question of who wrote out the poems, he said, ha ha, it was definitely not me. And for your question about who was here during the, the break-in thing, answer to both of those is Hattie. He did like a nod or a bow and turned to his sister. Hattie, standing precipitously still, spoke. I came in, and there, under the till, was our safe, open, a pry bar next to it, and large footprints leading up to the thing, then away. Silence. Krugly asked if he might see these prints. She brought us to them, and what we saw was passing strange. The prints were most obviously of a boot, or I ought to say a pair of boots, although there was some odd aspect about them. Each print seemed smeared and outrageously wide, even if the length of the sole was unusually small. This was not easy to account for, and I began to tremble at the idea that this land had freak-footed things as well. That's intriguing, said Krugly. The wobbly gate, he added, after a moment, leads one to conclude our perpetrator wasn't exactly a steady hand. 
That was it. Relief. Something, said Chunk, about those footprints looks kind of familiar. Could they have been drinking? Ross said. A thought. Krugly made like to lean on an odd display where many-tongued giants, within seconds afraid again, though I noted they, like myself, were humanoid in form, chased about the smaller residents of the shrunken burg. The evidence appeared to go in the direction I didn't like. A clearly recently applied assemblage showed these characters had packs of ice on their heads, ointments or medicinal jars ensconcing them, and when we had originally entered, there was a large stack of what Motley called tongue depressants, sized for one miniature man. A sign made boast that giants got new raiment daily. Or maybe something was slightly off with the legs, said Krugly. Could be. Ah, well. Tell you the truth, I'm not too worried, John Lith said. We've got insurance for exactly this sort of thing, and hey, I mean, if someone can steal money from us and get away with it, more power to them. He laughed and made a clap with his paws that didn't resound much, then said, I mean, I would like us to get it back. A whisper. But, you know, it doesn't have to be too big a deal. Jackson appeared nonplussed. John Lith Braid put a paw on Krugly's shoulder. But if you do get it back, it would be good. Does that insurance have a big payout? Ross said to John Lith. Ross, Krugly said. No, no, said John Lith. It would just cover exactly half what was taken, which these days is less than what we make in a week. Krugly wiggled his brow in a way that made me wonder if he might be attempting to lift his eyebrows. If only he could know that he didn't have any perceptible to man. Profit margin high due to the circumstances, then. Yeah, said John Lith. Also, there appeared to be miniature sick pails next to all the various models in the room, filled with I dare not say what. People stuck in one place really want to see what other homes could look like, even if it is shrunk down. We were next in a place called Hagar's Slop Hut, sitting in a kind of nook with high wood planks as our backing, wine-colored padded cushions underneath our dungarees. We were Motley, Ross, and me, as well as Junk, Krugly, and Jackson. She looks miserable, Motley had said the moment we sat. Now, glasses of brandy and bread bowls of some kind of potato cream stew before us, he was elaborating. It confirms what Biddleston said. What? said Junk. That every time Bid's gone in there for years, the woman at the shops seemed dour. Do you think she's stealing the money? Or seeing one of the customers on the side? What the heck gave you that idea? said Junk. Mm. Did you not see the way Hattie Forlornly was looking at the miniature of a hotel? A hotel. Plus, she just seems so buttoned up, running the business with her brother. My understanding is he's got girls he meets through the stage all the time. Yeah, wait, so I don't understand. What is it he does, said Junk? As his side thing, the entertainment company? What's that mean? His company's putting on a show at the Right Way Cafe this eve. We should pop in and give it a gaze. Motley slurped a few leaks. But yes, I think she's like a bird in a cage at that museum. Do you see how quiet she was? She's like one of those dolls in the miniature houses. An analogy not too difficult, Krugly growled. It may be that this would shock every one of you, perhaps even our newly arrived inmate, Jackson said, looking from the bread bowl which he'd devoured. But it does seem Motley is in fact in tune. I as well feel her to be oddly pint. Yes, said Motley, cheese flung. Sorry, you know I get a little handsy with my spoon. She's like that person Cheryl over at the book brothel. Well, the old book brothel on Terrid Street. He ceased speaking and looked at Jackson, who, after he picked up the last delicious morsel of bread, which clearly he was not too little fond of, had become as of a face blank and had set the chunk on his plate. Oh, Motley said. Sorry, Jack. It's not... 
Jackson said. Relevant. I snatched the last of Jackson's bread. With a man as hungry as I, I could not afford to obey niceties for the obvious sadness that had broken forth on our table. The loaf tasted magnificent. So, Junk said, now seated we were at the Junk Cat's Domain, a close-sealing department that had many bits of smashed and cracked wagonery about all the corners. My spirits had risen by now since I'd gotten some good food. This seemed to be a place where lanterns explode, reins burst, and wheels with their axles shatter. She had explained to me that this was somehow related to her work, a notion which gave me a terrifying chill. You should be telling us everything, the molly with black curled hair went on. Where'd you come from? And if you don't mind me asking, how'd you get access to Franzia? It hardly needs reminding that there is junk, the matter of stolen funds, Jackson said. He rose from the sofa arm that he'd been perched on. Enforcers, Krugly and Ross, were off looking for Hattie and Johnlith's one hired employee, a young clerk, supposedly out fetching change, smaller units of currency, at the time of the robbery, but who'd not been discovered since the money vanished. Well, Junk ceased. Yeah, but this is the first outsider to be near coherent to come into Franzia in ages. Maybe he could tell us how to get out back into the world again, or what people have said of our town, or what games are out there that we haven't gotten to play. Games shall be always available, thanks to your shimmering genius. Aw, thanks, said Junk. But I- Here I have before me a list. Jackson, from his coat, brought out a piece of paper. These are three employees previous, along with places of residence or work, who have labored under the braids at Portage in Halcyon Eras. Portage, I had ascertained, was the name of the museum. Signs in town indicated that these cats fortunately not just talked, but wrote in the tongue I was versed in. Chunk and Motley made startled and unmannered faces at Jackson's cry. How'd you get that? Junk said. When Ross and Krugly were wasting precious investigatory seconds staring at that bizarre giant's display, I stealthily implied to Johnlith that I needed consultation on restoring one dead relative's scale model art gallery, Jackson said, and that I wished not to disturb him or his sister for assistance, considering their current duress. Despite that, he offered, again and even again, to help me himself, and that it was not a problem, but I stayed firm, and then finally, he jotted three names of those who had worked for him before. The current missing employee was tacitly left out by both of us. Junk said, How is it convinced to him that you are someone who cares at all about miniatures? Jackson made a grudging, but I note, conciliating motion of the head. It would not have been. I claimed it was to prepare a gift for that one's day of birth, pointing at Motley. He is touching in the fictional universe of his lies, said that gentle cat with a satirical grin. A look at you, Motley and Johnlith concluded that you had the miniaturist's calling, as the man worded. He claimed he had an immediate feel of those who enjoy scaled-down houses, buildings, and folk. With your look, speech, and overall gait, you scored apparently in something akin to the 99th percentile range. Motley bowed. Before we left, Krugly and Ross came in to confirm that, indeed, about six different witnesses appeared to hear a violent sound of breaking glass the same moment in which John Lithbraid was yelling out about his entertainment tonight, apparently a weekly custom. John Lith eagerly supplied that he always does this at 11 of a morning on a Saturday, so this, along with the six witnesses, also simultaneously hearing the bell tower ring 11 times, seemed to confirm the time of the robbery beyond all possible doubt. Next moment, we knocked on a door the other side of town. While waiting for it to open, I turned to Motley Cat and said, remembering, Do you know where I might find dog chew, as it's called? Motley frowned. No. Is it a food? 
Yes. Then I should know. Hmm. Do you mean Puppy Chow? Junk said. Yes, I exclaimed. You've hit on it. Do you know? The door swung. We had before us a wizened, overgrown old cat who wore a clanging, awkward bell around his reputable midriff. Bellman, as he said he called himself, claimed he had a good deal of ringing to do and we'd better make it quick. Jackson fast inquired as to the nature of his previous employers, the Braids, but this immediately came to indignation and protest. I could see that the smoke-colored questioner was, if nothing, far too direct, despite the tintinabulator's need for haste. This did lead me to a confusion, or something which puzzled me, about Jackson, that I shall come to further on. Bellman, on being asked questions as to the nature of his former employer's character, was lofty and one could almost say priggish about respect for the Braid's privacy, and how, as a long-experienced miniaturist and salesman, he took immense pride in his work and should never stoop to gossip or hearsay. As the door shut, I caught just the briefest glimpse of his own miniaturized people, all with miniature bells about the waists. It's too bad that didn't work, said Motley on our way back to the road. You should have used me if you want to get dirt on the braids. I'm good at extracting that sort of thing from people. Jackson gave black and white blotched cat a long glance and said, Yes. Well, it pains me to yield, yet you're better fit for this line of inquiry. You'll ask questions for the next? With gusto. At a library, stately and old, we strode through the shockingly vast marbled anteroom under a huge mural of once more, humans and not cats, in what I recognized to be antiquated clothing that was not currently in style. In the tableau, they hunted a horse. Motley, I think she is the one behind the front desk. Ah, see there her name on the plaque. We walked toward the librarian when my gaze was caught by an open archway into a room lined fully with green volumes. It was brought back to me that, as I was now at a library, apparently more equipped and fitted than the reading room in Tupenia, I had heard all day the swish of ash in the envelope on my breast, extracted from the mouth of my bag, and wondered if the sun and diamond should ever write back to Innes. Regardless, it occurred to me that I should peruse some written as well as spoken local knowledge to help me in my broader quest, charting the earth while sketching the line, plus as a byproduct, finding any clues to the strange and surprising nature of the curious little town. Immediately, I broke off and under a curved window leafed a book. I was relieved to see that evidently they used the same calendar scheme I found in all my travels. It was evident because all things issued in what I reckoned to be the current year were upon a shelf marked latest. This itself made me grateful, along with that everything should be written in a tongue I could comprehend. Inside the cover, past the flyleaf, it was inscribed, A Theory Lately Inquired Regarding the Origin of the Circumstances. The volume had been printed only a week prior. I saw inside the slop hut via one calendar there what the current day was, as of course I'd lost track during my stumblings in the shroud. I knew not what circumstances this inscription referred to or the intent of the author, a Melinda Charon, but nevertheless something in the title intrigued me, and I read on. While it is widely known that the circumstances in which Franzia became permanently enclosed happened in December, the year and with it it listed a date I knew to be about thirty-nine months prior. It went on, Of course, one of the many consequences of this cutoff is all the things we have lost, including but not limited to Rock Eye Mountains, to Penny and Pineapples, the worlds of I remembered! I must present to someone the pineapple that woman Liza had given me, for they would be in sure wonder and awe of its appearance. The rest of the section I quickly passed over as it enumerated things I was already familiar with. On page 70, not far from the end, for really it was a slim monograph, with an argument on the left margin saying, I extract the velocity theorem. 
I noticed, it's really quite apparent from my own investigations checked and verified by faculty listed in Appendix A, as well as my good friend and respectable colleague, Nella Morin, we can see that the spreading of the vapor must have been consequent upon snow, come at a high velocity and from a great height, and that it had to have started at the Frandor Hill in the East Frandorian Franzia section of the city. This part had run over into the upper part of a new verso, and it was on the bottom of the opposing recto that something wondrous arrested my gaze and forced me to once more skip. It has very lately been made apparent that one of the last of the mentally unsound to have come into Franzia have, hearing shouts of Junk and Jackson as well as bootsteps echoing toward me, I flipped the page, but in my haste ripped it slightly, and in retrospect realize in my excitement I must have accidentally turned to the next plus one. For the following passage didn't connect with what I'd just seen. With this, we can surmise that to those who were not in Franzia at the time of the inciting, these persons might, upon returning to the mist from whence they came, experience, to put it bluntly, this ran on the following page, but a strange yelp issued from my throat when I heard Motley's voice say, What you reading? His paw snatched the book, and he said, Oh boy, ripped. You think with all the book damage that's happened, they wouldn't make a big deal of it, especially since we now think it's just from people getting distressed. Simultaneous to this was Junk and Jackson, yelling, I know, but why'd you have to break in, said Junk. A change of course, dear Junk, I had an inspiration timed in the midst of Motley's querying. But he was doing exactly what you asked. He was finding out about what the librarian thought of the braids. Yes, after Motley spent one sizable minute blathering about his appalling sexual history in libraries. Yeah, I was a little Far, but he was getting her to open. We'd better go. Motley shoved the book back on the shelf. They're not going to find out there's been a rip in one of their new volumes. And he grabbed my arm and whirled me out, the sentence still disturbing and incomplete. I kept stumbling back, looking longingly to the entrance, but Motley chattered on blithely about how lucky he was to have committed to memory so much verse, so that the circumstances had not impinged so great an offense on at least that aspect of his days, while Junk and Jackson went harried. When Ms. Tarrant informed, cried Jackson, that she'd heard tell of the newest hire at the portage being one young, inexperienced whelp, and how perplexing it was to her, I realized I had to pry into her resume before working at the museum. Okay, but why? Junk cried. Because- Wait, said Motley. What time is it? Jackson said ten to six. Well, we gotta get to that thing at the Rightway Cafe soon, said Motley. John Lithbraid's entertainment company's putting on a show there. Ah, yes, said Jackson. Well, I need to rush home and put on my new Homburg. It has a gilt bow. Let's actually try to get there on time, said Junk, instead of doing this on Motley time. We bustled to a pleasant brown and table-decked coffee house as I still puzzled over what could lie on the other end of that sentence, which I would have come to if not for that forced apiciapesis. Those who were not in Francia at the time of the inciting might experience, to put it bluntly, what? Cats in various dress portioned around the room. Some leaned back far in chairs, overalls stretched with the dregs of a teacup on a saucer before them. Others sat in pairs, intently leaning forward, elbows on the board and discussing what clearly had to be some great matter of import. It was then that I could perceive, as some picked up handles for coffee or smoked rolls of burning tobacco, that these creatures possessed more agility with the paws than a regular cat might. To wit, they could still pick things up. But when I saw how many bits of liquid were spilled, and how often cups clattered rudely here and there, it became obvious that some of the blessings of thumbs had been lost. It was nearly as if they retained vestige of the thumb instinct, and even the thumb ability, 
without the thumbs themselves. Okay! From up on the podium, we saw Jonleth addressing the room. Thank you guys for coming to another fabulous Rictus Entertainment event. That is our entertainment company. My name is Jonleth Braid, head booker and CEO. You guys, the ideas... He paused. Whether it's the miniature museum, I run a miniature museum and shop downtown, Portage. People cheered. Oh, oh, you know it? Yeah, all right, man. Well, it's believed that's what's necessary, is that a miniature museum is a place of ideas. And ideals, because it's smaller versions of the rooms we want to see. But that's what this community needs right now, is a place of ideas. Variety. Right, right, yeah? No one in the crowd, as far as I heard, had said anything, but Jonleth acted as if someone had. You guys get it? So you see, solemn, that we need things like this in our community if we're still going to be the kind of place that a marketplace of ideas can be. And that's what you're going to see in tonight's show. Each of our acts that we manage is like a different idea that gives you new things to challenge about one's philosophy. Rictus Entertainment's philosophy is very much that we cannot let our entertainment infantilize us. It has to still much after this. Finally, thanks to the owner of Rightway Cafe, Frederick, for closing his bank on Saturdays starting this week so he can offer more drinks here at the cafe. Although, there wasn't much notice for those of us who wanted to cash a check for the weekend. We don't thank you, he grinned. Motley laughed, but only him, and Jackson whispered, Blanche, can you be certain your madness isn't a shield from punishment such as this? All right, so without further ado, said Jonleth, here is our first act, the instigators. He stepped off and returned a moment later, wearing a different costume and holding a trumpet. You guys ready to get instigated? Wait, did you hear what he said? Junk whispered. If there wasn't any notice for the bank now being closed Saturdays, maybe that has an effect on the young clerk's alibi. Didn't they say he was supposed to be out getting change for the shop? Motley whispered. Are these all just him? What? The axe for John Liff's company. It's just him. I also wonder, said Jackson, if this might not be a significant piece of our case. One wonders if they've yet found the clerk. Yeah, what was his name again? Junk said. Mart Evesdale, Motley said. All right, thank you, we are the instigators, and thanks to Jonleth Braid for doing such a fantastic job managing us, said Jonleth. Next up will be the incentivizers. Did you notice, Jack, that with that librarian, she had a miniature bookshelf on her desk dated from before she had worked at the museum? You have hit precisely on what's beginning to intrigue mine interest, Motley. After John Lith, sometimes with the cat who owned the cafe in the Tingston, doing a harmonic accompaniment on flute, performed under various different guises, we walked out into the candle-studded night, and Motley offered me use of his house. I figure you probably need a place to stay. I accepted, and once in his apartments, modest but exquisitely decorated, we spoke over a liqueur, as he called it, and hors d'oeuvres he called Sanford Sandys, a little rich for my palate. Sorry I haven't got any quality iced cream said Motley, serving me something that I thought tasted extraordinary. Can't get your hands on any good stuff since our best ice cream merchant, Gerald Brilloff, died abroad. So then, you aren't all trapped in this town? Oh, we are, he said. To go abroad is how we refer to anyone going to the Broaddale on the east side of town, where purple lightning flashes and not infrequently strikes. I shuddered. I would have liked to have known about this sooner. Some people have had, I would say, ill-advised picnics there, he said, and supposedly when it strikes their food, it tastes wonderful. Brilloff was trying to get it into his iced cream mix for profit. But you, you are from outside, actually abroad. He sat on a couch in the parlor while I sat in an armchair. I affirmed the opinion. Well then, said Motley, what's it like? We haven't seen anything outside of Franzia for three years, more. But probably I'd never want to leave. Yes? 
Yeah, he said. Oh, of course, I still want Franzia to be unleashed from this particular problem. I think of all the things we're missing. But I myself wouldn't wish to venture out again. Huh. I'm so perfectly ensconced in the community. We have a fantastic mayor and a grand food and art scene. Besides, he added, I got out all my travel urges in my more illustrious youth. I asked him then if he recalled the village of Tupenia, as well as the pine glades peppering that southern border. He said yes, and that in fact in those younger days, I cannot readily determine the age of the catman, he had gone with little enough money on vacation to the city west of Tupenia, Farlich, met someone there who needed a place to live, acquired a trade, engaged a room, moved that person in, went out one day and saw a fantastic ring, which the beloved apparently adored to wear and have admired and therefrom sprang the idea of marriage, it seemed, for the select purpose of having an excuse to purchase said ring. Rented players for an elaborate and arduous passion play about the two of them that was the means by which the player representing Motley might ask the player representing the beloved for their hand in marriage, at which point Motley gave the real beloved a sly glance, all of which cost no little time, effort, and money, at which point the beloved became upset that they had not gotten to propose something Motley was up to that point unaware, the beloved wished to be the active insider of, therefore the whole passion play went unappreciated, Motley went into debt trying to pay off the players and the jewelers, the jeweler with his loop stared at Motley ominously in the street, and the players began to put on skits involving a Sanford Motley inspired parable player getting stabbed by actors, and the beloved proposed a cancellation of the whole marriage. That was about two weeks. In total? Yeah. Well, I described Tupenia to him as best I could, Farlage I'd never seen, to which he would say at times, oh, they haven't done anything to fix that, and other such remarks. I was for a moment afeared that Motley might be despondent or even deflated at the prospect that Tupenia had changed so little in all the time he'd been deprived of it. But instead, his reaction was heartily the reverse. Ah, it's just as I remember it, with a delightful lilt. I asked him something that had been troubling me for some time. How... I said, feeling uneasy to be speaking in this strange environment. Is it that Jackson might ask the bell ringer questions so directly, and yet... Silence. Hmm? I gestured to signify that I was at a loss to finish my query. Motley studied me for a moment. You're not really from a mental institution, are you? No. Right. Why would you be running around to Penia if you were confined to a loony bin? He looked through his window. So you're wondering why Jackson's so blunt if he's so difficult to get close to. Not precisely that, I clarified. Though with the nasal bandage, I wonder if his bluntness gets him into fights. Did someone break his nose? I don't know, said Motley. It could be. He's worn it for years, though I don't think he did before the start of the circumstances. But it's because he's so blunt, I'd say, said Motley, that he's so difficult to get close to. That only made sense. But it didn't quite express the mystery I was striving toward. I had a feeling, not yet rational, that this was connected with my broader quest. So, said the black and white speckled cat, what made you come to Franzia? I felt myself embarrassed. The line, I said, and this was true. What's the line? I shifted. I carry with me, I told him, since the days of my fifteenth year in the Bog Barrens, the belief that there is a line of depth which will bring rotundity and maybe even light to all those around you, both in their words, their manners, speeches, feelings, and bearings. 
Motley stared at me, but his face, buried in feline ambiguity, yet nevertheless, due to his particular character, undoubtedly expressive, urged me to go on. But that this line, such as the way it is with all such things, cannot be perceived unless one makes a sincere effort to search all the angles of the earth, and all the angles of everyone who inhabits it, despite the initial illusory image of flatness, I said. When Innes did ask me, Innes? The keeper of the reading room in Tupenia. But when he asked me if this line was also perforce necessarily under the auspices of our Lord Almighty God, and free from the possibility of being outside of God, I said no. Mm. He took a sip from the mug of tea he kept beside the liqueur. It could be outside of God. Yes, I said I believed in it regardless of the possibility of God's absence. Ah, again from a curious contortion of the face, I think he believed himself to be raising his eyebrows. If I were you, I'd believe in it regardless of the presence of Almighty God. I wanted to ask if he believed in such presence, but refrained and took a drink. After showing me the spare bed and exiting for his own chambers, he said he'd bid me good night, though nevertheless walked by the open door what may have been seven times with different quizzes. One was, are you any less afraid of us in our, um, cat form now? He held a plate with a cheese hunk and artfully spiraled strawberry. Of you, I said. Well, I am incredibly charming. I stared at the window from the flat of my bed. The last time by the door, his shadow darkened. He said, The thing about Jackson is, it's true he doesn't crave to be close to anybody, and yet he's willing to be incredibly blunt. He chewed on a pipe which remained forever unlit. I'm blunt too, but it's because I want to know all. I gazed at Motley's outline and turned back to the window. And I can tell you personally, he said, especially from what I've observed over these last few months, that despite the lack of closeness Jackson prefers to maintain, he has some kind of odd instinct for... The line. Sorry? Nothing. He walked toward his room, and I heard him say, Well, we haven't found the answer, but at least we have found the confusion. This did raise a smile from me. End of episode four. To be continued in episode five. Jackson the Cat is written by Oak Edel and performed by me, Jason Everett. The theme music is Black Widow by Graham. Stay tuned for the continuation of this story in episode five. Until then...